there's two um there's two atoms walking down the street and one of them says oh my god i think i lost an electron and the other one turns to him and says how do you know or no fuck god damn it i need to do this again let me try this again this is why we didn't go into comedy folks Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where everything you thought you knew is wrong and everything we thought we knew is complicated. Uh-oh. My name is Alistair and I have my PhD in analytical chemistry from Queen's University. And my name is Sienna and I'm getting my PhD in neuroscience from McGill University. And we are your PhD two for you. Yeah. <laughs> We're here for you, bringing you the science that you never asked for. Exactly. The science you never thought that you needed to know. That was almost Mm -hmm. like alliteration. I liked that. (laughs) So I uh, came across some interesting articles and thought I would want to talk about them for this podcast episode. And in doing so, I realized that I kind of wish I was back in school learning things. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But yeah, today we're going to be talking about chemical bonding. Now, before our listeners turn off and tune out and go to a funnier comedy murder mystery podcast um i'm gonna try and keep this as accessible and interesting as possible because it really is some interesting research that came out last year and i think we'll all learn something along the way maybe we'll even you know bond a little over the topic (laughs) there are there are so many jokes that i wanted to make (laughs) in doing a bonding episode um, a lot mm. of them involve sex, so we're not going to. Oh, so, okay. interesting. Uh, <laughs> the classic one is interesting. Like, all about bondage and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, chemists yeah, are, yeah, chemists yeah. Are Everyone knew. <laughs> we knew that. <laughs> no, but what's the other one? You could go, I'll have a molecule, shaken, not stirred. <laughs> That's good. Double O bond. Double O bond. Uh, I, I have one. Uh, I don't know why we're on a tangent about <laughs> chemistry jokes, but I'm here for it. I like... Uh, Sodi- a sodium atom and a chlorine atom are walking down the street. That's assault. The so- Thank you, Sam. <laughs> uh, so the sodium atom says, I think I lost an electron. And the chlorine says, are you sure? And the sodium says, yeah, I'm positive. <laughs> Hilarious. Your uh-huh, addition was much uh-huh, funnier. Uh-huh. All right. Well, all so. that's getting cut out. <laughs> no, they're good jokes. <laughs> they are good jokes. Uh, listeners, if you have any good science-adjacent jokes that you'd like to send to us, you can do so by emailing them to us at phd32b at gmail.com. That's phd32b at gmail.com. Or engage with us on social media. We love to get your comments, messages, and uh, tweets. We're not yet a DR on all social media. Uh, sodium and a chlorine walked into a bank they were there for bonds <laughs> i just made that one up off the top of my head <laughs> oh, oh, if you think you can do better than sienna's off the top of her head joke you probably can send us send us your jokes at not Please. yet a dr on social media or our email as i've already said all right so today we're talking about bonding um, do you know, Sienna, the different types of bonds that exist? I do, actually, because I am... Can you list them? ...a scientist. Uh, hydrogen bonds. hmm Ionic bonds. There you go. Yep. And then non-ionic bonds. Which are called? Um, Starts with a C. Sharing is caring bonds. <laughs> uh, you know what? That's what we should call them. Sharing is caring bonds. C. It starts with a C. Mm-hmm. Co- codependent <laughs> bonding <laughs> okay. uh, time's up uh covalent bonds covalent right i'm sorry it's late at night i've been studying other things that's okay so yeah those are kind of the, there are other types of bonds but there are three main types um two of the most important being covalent bonds and ionic bonds which you mm-hmm. mentioned ionic bonds Covalent bonds are the sharing of electrons between the atoms 
in a molecule, whereas ionic bonds are the electrostatic attractions between oppositely charged ions. So often you think about it as one atom taking the electrons from another atom, and then they both become charged, kind of like my bad joke about sodium and chlorine. Mm -hmm. And then also you mentioned hydrogen bonding, and hydrogen bonding is this kind of pseudo-bonding, uh, which is an electrostatic attraction between an atom and the positive charge of a hydrogen atom that is bound mm -hmm. to something else. And so these are kind of the three types of bonding we're going to talk about today, mainly Yay. covalent bonds and hydrogen bonds, because we have learned in the last year that they might being... be the same thing. Yeah, the line's blurry. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to try and talk about this nebulous concept without diving mm. into too much density functional theory. Great. So a key thing about hydrogen bonds that we've known for a very long time is that they are weaker than a covalent bond and they Sad. can be between molecules or within molecules. This is sometimes True. called inter or intramolecular. So you can nice. have them between within a molecule. molecules or within molecules. Yes. You look confused. What's the difference? Like between, so you can have, if you have a big molecule, like a protein or something, within that single chain of the molecule, you can oh. have hydrogen bonding, which causes the tertiary structures, actually, Got the it. folding of right. proteins. I should have known that. <laughs> or you can have interactions between two separate molecules yes. that are not covalently bound, but interact with hydrogen bonds. True. That's usually in the quaternary structures, I believe. Of or proteins. in DNA. Well, yeah, DNA is a great example. I sounded really unexcited when I said or in DNA. <laughs> I would like to express to people that I just don't always uh, promote tone in my voice. <laughs> it's very cool and exciting that DNA has hydrogen bonds. It is very, very cool. cool. Not talking about that today. but Not talking yeah. about it today, apparently. But it's cool. Maybe someday. <laughs> so it's not or in DNA. It's or in DNA. <laughs> Do you want to just edit that and splice that bit in? <laughs> or in DNA. <laughs> bond the two uh, pieces of audio together. Exactly. So I'm getting all the concepts out of the way before we dive into the research. Love concepts. Um, another concept is electronegativity. We're going to be talking yes. a bit about it. And electronegativity is the tendency of an atom to attract other electrons. Yes. And so as you can imagine, it's a key concept in the different bonds that we'll be talking about. Do you know, if you think about the periodic table, which yes. I'm sure you do every day, um, Electronegativity generally increases as you go which way along the periodic table? The uh, Can you remember from first year chemistry periodic trends? I, I know that oxygen is more electron negative than nitrogen. Okay, that's a good so start. So, oh, so it goes as you go left along the rows, right? Um, Towards sodium. It increases from left to right as you go uh, across the groups. Okay, and then it decreases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Decrease down the columns? It's the opposite. It Damn. decreases up the periods and increases across the groups. That makes sense because hydrogen is super weak and it's the smallest. Bond. Yeah, or the way that uh, I think is better to think about <laughs> it is that fluorine is very electronegative. And so you go from mm. bottom to top, from left to right. Right. Which I guess... Unfortunately, I don't know anything about the periodic table anymore, except for oxygen, carbon, yeah, and Yeah, you really hydrogen. just stick to your rum now, don't you? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I forgot about... I did know that fluorine was the most mm. electron negative. I should, probably shouldn't like been able to deduce that. i just forgotten. That's okay. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have either forgotten about the periodic trends or have never even considered that... There are periodic trends. So, yeah. And we're not talking about clothing, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Jorts, back in style. Um, <laughs> you heard it here the first. Time, the time this episode comes out, Jorts will have come back yeah, in style. I'm going to so. sound super hip. <laughs> yeah. Cargo shorts are the next thing no. that's coming out. I can tell you. <laughs> popcorn shirts, you know it. We're going there. Oh my god, popcorn shirts. I forgot about those. <gasps> I'm bringing them in style this summer. <laughs> Sienna, do it. I was so envious of all my friends that had them because all my friends were girls, right? Yeah, so I know. So they all had them, and as a guy, you couldn't wear popcorn shirts because, no. you know, 
back but in the 2000s. Now it's 2022, Alistair. Yeah! And <gasps> Cro- a crop top popcorn shirt? I bet men can wear crop top popcorn. Crop top popcorn. I like how this sounds too. <laughs> it's too much. Crop pop, we'll call them. Crop pop summer. Yes! Crop pop summer. I'm loving this. All right. Not to be confused with crock pot <laughs> summer, which is for us soup girls and us soup girls alone. <laughs> We haven't left our houses in days. Can you tell us this? We're very, uh, we're very all over the place today. So the final concept I want to explain before we talk about this interesting research is polyrepulsion. Have you heard of polyrepulsion before? Or maybe the poly-exclusion principle? No, I don't know. I've never heard of the poly-exclusion principle. Pep. Uh, Give me a pep talk. (laughs) All right. So here's... Here's the thing. Um, The Pell exclusion principle is a physics principle, which, you know, chemistry and physics are often intertwined. And it states that two Mm -hmm. fermions can't occupy the same quantum state. I have heard of this. Okay. So what this means in terms of bonding and atoms is that electrons, which are a type of fermion, cannot all fall into the lowest energy state. Mm -hmm. So um, basically, we often talk about it as that two electrons can't have the same address they can't have the same quantum numbers a lot of ways Mm -hmm. to explain this but for our purposes today the key concept is that um, because of the Pauli repulsion electrons don't all fall into the lowest orbital or the lowest energy state and so they Mm -hmm. have to sit in successively larger and larger orbitals at a further distance from the nucleus of an atom does that make sense yeah, so this has to do with like the 1s1 and 1s2 and 2p1 and etc., which exactly. are just weird names, not very exciting names for orbitals of which are just areas of space that electrons occupy around the nucleus of an atom, and they change shape depending on how far you go out. And the s orbital is the closest to the nucleus and smallest and circularest. Yep. And I like her. She's cute. Yeah, the one and it's the one s orbital is a yes. sphere. Actually, all s orbitals yes. are spheres. But hence the s probably. Yeah. Uh, y- sure. You know what? We'll I'm going to go, go out on a limb and say that that is correct. I'm not even going to look it up. <laughs> at least if it's not hence the S, you can at least use it to remember the S. Exactly. S, sphere. Sphere S. And then the P orbital looks like dumbbells, which, but the D orbital looks like dumbbells with a donut. So it's a double D, but it's not a double D orbital. Anyway, I didn't name them. Thank goodness I didn't name them because then it would be even more confusing. The popcorn orbital. <laughs> the popcorn crop top orbital. The ice cream orbital. That's what I would have named one of them. (laughs) Of course you would have. Of course you would have. So this also means that atoms occupy a volume and they can't be put too closely together. And this is why we can't touch anything. Well, yes. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Listeners, if you're not familiar with the fact that everything repels everything and therefore you're not actually touching anything because it's just the electrons of your fingers repelling the table that you have your hand on just you're getting pretty close but you're not you're not touching action you're not you're not bumping atoms (laughs) (laughs) yes uh, which is honestly the best way to put that you're just not bumping atoms you're not bumping atoms that is true the nuclei are not getting too close Mm -mm. together because if that happened kaboom yeah (laughs) which is why we don't do it i guess well which is why we try to avoid it if we can't Try not um, to do it while touching tables. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the poly... One, one other cool thing that I just, in my research about this, came across is that the poly-exclusion principle is also partly responsible for the fact that two objects can't be in the same place at the same time. Uh, oh, wow. As much as that would make my life easier <laughs> and this podcast easier, you can't have two things that have the same set of quantum numbers. And so everything is unique. In and the so universe. that's why we can never occupy the same space. Exactly. Completely irrelevant so to what we're going to be talking about today, it. but yeah. Yeah. I mean, the okay. poly, just keep poly repulsion in your mind and how atoms can't get put too close together, but the whole... It just means multiple, no way. One, yes, good. Poly repulse, mm-mm. Multiples, mm-mm. Okay, I think, I think you're simplifying this a bit too much, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the first paper that I want to talk about is called Crossover from Hydrogen to Chemical Bonding. It was published in Science on the okay. 8th of January, 2021. And it's Ooh. by B. Derecka, Q. Yu, N. Lewis, W. Carpenter, J. Bowman, and A. Tokmakov. And it's a really interesting investigation into hydrogen bonds. I love hydrogen bonds. 
And so in a conventional hydrogen bond, as we kind of touched on earlier, Mm -hmm. there is a donor and an acceptor. And the separation between the donor and the acceptor, these are the two atoms that are not the hydrogen. Yeah. The separation is quite large. It's usually around 2.7 angstroms. Mm -hmm. And an angstrom is uh, about the size of a chlorine atom or 0.1 nanometers. So very, very, very small, but not Mm -hmm. insignificant. So 2.7 angstroms is, you know, almost three... Almost three chlorines. Three chlorine atoms. Which I'm sure everyone can picture in their mind, but it's just very, 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 very small. It's not picturable, unfortunately. But if you think of a chlorine atom as a sphere, and it's got a radius of one angstrom... (laughs) One nanometer. (laughs) Yeah, one nanometer. Put that in your head, folks. You'll be able... (laughs) It's very small. Yes, and... The ideal state for the hydrogen to sit along this donor acceptor line is yes. closer to the donor because it's covalently bonded to the donor. Yeah. And makes then sense. it's hydrogen bonding with the acceptor. I'm doing a lot of hand gestures in this, but you can just picture in your mind That's okay. the covalent bond and the hydrogen bond. Think of it as two people are holding hands. The hands is the hydrogen slash hydrogen bond, but one of the people has a much longer arm than the other person, and they have to reach further to hold the hand than the other person. It's uneven hand-holding. Yeah, or two people are linking arms and then the other person, and then holding a rope between the two other people. The rope's a lot weaker, can move around a lot more, the linked arms is a lot stronger. Oh yeah, that's a way to picture the other partner. I was just thinking of the hydrogen bonding people. Oh, here. yeah. Anyways, the reason, yeah, it's... One person has to reach further than the other person to reach the hydrogen. Yeah. Because the hydrogen is connected to the other person. And so a way to a way to talk about this in terms of more physical properties is mm-hmm. that there is a potential minimum localized near the donor um, yeah. at the covalent donor hydrogen length. So mm-hmm. it's a covalent bond and it's the hydrogen sits closer to the donor. As you bring the donor and acceptors closer together the Mm -hmm. strength of the hydrogen bond increases, and actually this barrier decreases until uh, there's a zero-point energy of the proton, which is the hydrogen, Mm -hmm. uh, and gives you a single well potential. So I'm going to show you a figure. We'll put this on our social media so you can look at this as well. But if Mm -hmm. you look at these two curves, you can see Mm -hmm. that on the left, we have a conventional hydrogen bond, and there are kind of two wells, and then on the right, as these donor and acceptors are being brought closer together, it's becoming closer to just a single um, well. Well, Makes sense. And so this single well, flat-bottomed kind of thing is what we call a strong hydrogen bond regime. And it makes sense. The name makes sense, right? The hydrogen is now really, really close to both of these, and it's very, very strong. But it's still a hydrogen bond. This is still mm-hmm. classified as a hydrogen bond. And so the potential energy surface is a key descriptor in underlying the quantum mechanical electronic structure of this bond and linking it to experimental observations. Yeah, I know. So basically, like, (laughs) this this idea of the well, of these peaks, is... A well is just a point of low energy, folks. Yeah. And these points of low energy are the key link to talking about quantum mechanical stuff and experimental observations. Okay. Okay? Yeah. And so what these researchers did, which was very involved and very interesting, is they used femtosecond (laughs) two-dimensional infrared spectroscopy. So they're using light Mm -hmm. on a femtosecond scale, very, very, very small amounts of time. Mm -hmm. They're using infrared light to see the bonding characteristics of a particular ion. Okay. And so the particular ion that they chose was HF2. Mm-hmm. HF2 is great because it has two fluorines and a hydrogen in the middle. Mm-hmm. And as we know from Sienna's bad job of explaining the periodic table, fluorine is the most electron negative. So it very badly wants the hydrogen on yes. both sides. Both it- fluorines are... It's This is like the most intense game of tug-of-war you would have ever seen. You've got your two strongest... <laughs> you know, quarterback people pulling on a rope and the ball in the center is not moving. Yeah. Because they're so strong. 
Yeah. They're pulling so bad. They want to win so bad. Yes. <laughs> um, they are They are competing for this hydrogen, and it's because it's a dynamic system, the hydrogen is in different places mm-hmm. at different times, but it's in between the two fluorines. What I yeah. mean by different places is it's getting pulled back and forth. It's not stationary, mm-hmm. but those fluorines are pulling really hard. And it's also great because it's linear and symmetric, so you can mm-hmm. see just how the hydrogen is moving, shuttling back and forth, basically. And you can study it in water at room temperature, so we love that. Oh, wow. My favorite. From the excitation peaks and the shifts that they saw in this two-dimensional infrared spectroscopy image, um, there was evidence of strong interactions between hydrogen and fluorine and a sharing of the hydrogen. So Mm -hmm. we're talking earlier about hydrogen bonds, and there's a donor and an acceptor. And the donor has the hydrogen close to it, and the acceptor is further away. What Mm -hmm. they saw in the spectroscopy was that there was this sharing between the two fluorines. In their words, for the chemistry nerds that listen to our (laughs) podcast, they said that modulation of the fluorine-fluorine distance affects the shared hydrogen in the strong hydrogen bond, causing it to experience a large amplitude variation of its confining potential from superharmonic to strongly anharmonic. So that's the key thing. obviously. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, the harmonicity of the hydrogen is important for whether it's in a hydrogen bond or a strong hydrogen bond regime. And so the way that the hydrogen behaves as it goes from this hydrogen bond to a covalent bond almost was Mm -hmm. directly observable with two-dimensional IR spectroscopy. And they could see this change in the quantum mechanical properties of it with the spectroscopy. So they're saying they could see the movement of the hydrogen with this spectroscopy. Yeah, and they could see that it is... Kind the of bond distances in a strong hydrogen bond regime not this mm-hmm. donor acceptor separ- separation where yep. there's a covalent bond and a hydrogen bond okay so then what they did is they did high level and harmonic quantum chemical calculations which i am not sure. going to go into <laughs> uh, but basically it confirmed the spectra and uh, it confirmed that what they saw was a result of the hydrogen taking on covalent behavior in both cases, like from both sides. Okay, so it was acting as though it was almost covalently bonded to both fluorine atoms, even exactly. though normally you can only covalently bond one hydrogen to one other thing. Exactly. Because yes. hydrogen doesn't really have a lot going on to covalently bond with. Mm-hmm. Hydrogen, Sorry, hydrogen doesn't like to form two bonds. Hydrogen does not honestly have the materials to form two bonds. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Hydrogen has one thing to give away or one thing to accept, and that's about it. And that means it either gives away or it accepts once, and that's that's all it can do. Yeah, and that is that conceptualization of hydrogen has driven much yes. of the understanding of hydrogen bonding for a long time, yes. in that it forms a bond and then this interaction at a further distance. But what yes. these researchers were finding is that if you bring the two atoms that the hydrogen is interacting with closer together, it starts to actually form almost two bonds yeah and so this is based on like sort of the energy and distance of like the energy between the two atoms and the distance between them this is kind of what because i think we didn't really talk about what makes what defines a covalent bond (laughs) but i'm as far as i'm aware a covalent like besides the sort of the description of it being this sharing of electrons between two atoms that fit like a sort of mathematical model of adding up electrons mm-hmm. essentially there's also more like energy level and bond distance that also sort of define covalent bonds right yes totally yeah um maybe i should have explained that a little bit further but not only is a covalent bond defined as the sharing of electrons that's kind of a high level mm-hmm. explanation but there are underlying quantum properties. mechanical properties and observable bond lengths i mean the bond lengths differ between what atoms Mm -hmm. are being bonded together but But there's typically like a range that you would consider something most likely a covalent bond yes versus ionic bonds are usually really short bond lengths right yes yes don't worry (laughs) i know that one (laughs) yes yeah sorry i'm off on my own tangent in my head about ionic bonding because it's an electrostatic attraction but it also has a very short bond length yes so 
One other thing that the researchers found is that through their calculations, putting a hydrogen in between the two fluorine atoms actually mediates this fluorine-fluorine bond because you can have F2, which is Mm -hmm. a fluorine anion. But I'm going to show you some lovely orbital pictures now, which we'll also put on our social media. I love orbital pictures. And so you can see on the left here, we have the different orbitals of F2, the F2 anion. And at the bottom here is what's called the sigma bonding orbitals because you can see mm-hmm. the red here is connected together so that's what yeah so that's forming... like where the shared orbital is sort of yes. of the bond between the two fluorine mm-hmm. atoms and then on the right with the hydrogen in the middle you can see mm-hmm. that not only does the hydrogen kind of make that red orbital more yeah it stabilizes the orbital yeah but also the because energy on the... is lower yeah mm-hmm. yeah because from our viewers who might not be looking at this picture, essentially the bond without the hydrogen looks more like a dumbbell in the fact that it has sort of larger spaces where the atoms are, larger areas, but it has a dip in the center. And you can imagine that at that dip, it would also be kind of likely to sort of continue dipping in and break apart, almost like if you've ever seen a video of a cell division or something. Mm. Whereas if you put the hydrogen in the center of that little bond orbital, now that dip is no longer there. So it can't really break apart at that sort of central point where the bond is weakest. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so therefore it also takes less energy to sustain the bond because it's more stable. Mm -hmm. And so the hydrogen is mediating this. Mm -hmm. Thank you, hydrogen. In its super hydrogen bonding capability. (laughs) So Super hydrogen to the rescue. (laughs) Exactly. So to summarize this paper, the researchers found hydrogen bond superharmonicity, a blue shift Mm -hmm. in the IR spectra of the proton's stretch frequency upon hydrogen bond strengthening, and a major electron density redistribution that leads to the emergence of hydrogen-mediated donor-acceptor bonding. And they say that... And the use of those big words was... (laughs) To satisfy the chemistry nerds in the audience. Oh my god. Stop! (laughs) Stop making it for chemistry nerds. There are none. Basically... The interesting thing about this paper is that strong hydrogen bonding lies at a very critical tipping point where hydrogen bonding ends and chemical bonding begins. And not only have these researchers found it, but it is, they can kind of see it happen experimentally. So that was the first Mm -hmm. interesting paper that I came across that kind of changed my perspective of how we conceptualize hydrogen bonding. It's not Mm -hmm. just, you know... There's something covalently bound and an interaction. If you bring these things closer together, that actually becomes more of a bond between both of them. Now, I have a question now. Okay, sorry. You keep referring to ionic bonds as electrostatic interactions and hydrogen bonds as weak electrostatic interactions. Mm -hmm. And covalent bonds are the only ones where they share electrons. Mm -hmm. But my understanding of them, like the hydrogen bonding being an electrostatic interaction, I I get it on a conceptual level because, you know, the idea is that since it's covalently bonded to an atom, pretty much on like if you consider it on the opposite side of the other thing, one side of the hydrogen is more has a partial positive charge because the electron doesn't spend as much time there. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But that in itself attracts the sharing of an electron from the other atom that it's hydrogen bonding with, right? Like that gives space for the other electron. So I don't understand why covalent bonds are the only ones that are defined in terms of non-electrostatic interactions. Sorry, you mean... How, How are electrostatic interactions not just, in a sense, sharing of electrons? Just more strongly or more weakly? than like the covalent bond which is kind of like an equal sharing like an electrostatic interaction in an ionic bond is pretty much just like an unequal sharing of electrons <laughs> where one ion or one atom pretty much gets all of the electrons and the other one gets none but they're also still kind of technically sharing it's just uneven it's like your your big sibling gets 90 percent of the choice of the tv channels but sometimes you do get to choose <laughs> it's just unequal yeah. Whereas maybe if you were a set of twins, then you'd get to choose 50% of the time the TV channel. 
which is maybe more of a covalent bond. So it's a great question. <laughs> you're, you're kind of asking okay. where the line between covalent and ionic bonding is, and I... Well, because I think it's relevant to understanding then where the line between hydrogen and um, covalent bonding is. Well, so so the line between, as, as we discussed, the line between covalent and hydrogen bonding is... It's a gray zone. Gray, yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about ionic and covalent bonding, where the line is. It's a very high-level question for an answer that is almost... Like, I think for our listeners, if you're trying to understand the differences between them, it's almost always, like, from most of the molecules we know, and I think a lot of the situations, there it's we came up with these categories because it is easy to package most of the systems we know into these categories. Yes. But when you start to scratch away at the surface then I feel like you can reveal some uncomfortable similarities between these different packages. Yes. Or definitions, which, um, you know, I guess is the case of anything where you try and define something by two or three specific groups, and then um, you have to learn that you have to accept (laughs) the fact that not everything fits easily (laughs) into two or three specific groups, usually. And the and the and the boundaries of those groups, especially, are usually like really fussy. Yeah, and that's kind of the point of this episode. Is with hydrogen bonding, mm-hmm. it's not as clear as we thought it once was, and um, this other research, it's not as clear as we thought it once was. One thing I read is that it's a difference in electronegativities. So we we're talking about electronegativity earlier, and okay, so in for example, hydrogen, molecular hydrogen. The two hydrogens are the same in electronegativity. Water, hydrogen mm-hmm. and oxygen, very similar in electronegativity and may form a covalent bond to make H2O. Right. In salt, the sodium and the chloride have very different electronegativities. If you think about the yeah. periodic table, they're on basically opposite ends of the periodic table. And so yeah. they do not covalently bond because of the difference in their electronegativity. Right. But that's like the definition of the like the bond strength or the difference in electron negative strength, I guess, is usually what like the defines the difference between an ionic bond and a covalent bond, right? But that being said, it's not mm-hmm. that they aren't also still sharing electrons. It's just that because one of them is so much stronger at pulling that electron towards them than the other, it's unfair access to the electron yeah and the sharing is very unequal yeah yeah 90 percent of tv time 10 percent of tv time maybe even well it'd be like 99 percent of tv time and one percent of tv time if that because i think because then because then the the reason that i'm hesitant to agree with this on the face because i totally get where you're coming from totally understand what you're saying i'm just thinking through it and there are covalent bonds where it is an unequal covalent bond like it's you you have polar covalent bonds right you have bonds where it is not a 100 percent there it is 50 percent on the oxygen 50 percent on the hydrogen but that's where you start to get towards the edge of what is considered a covalent bond versus an ionic bond sure yes yes i think we've reached some sort of (laughs) (laughs) consensus on this point um because i i i totally understand Mm -hmm. what you're saying the blur between ionic and covalent is mm-hmm. there. What I want to talk about, and an interesting paper that came out in October of last yes. year, was talking about covalent bond trends. Love trends. This was a paper called The Chemical Bond, When Atom Size Instead of Electronegativity Difference Determines Trend in Bond Strength. It was oh, published interesting. in Chemistry, a European Journal, on the 5th of October, 2021, and it's by E. Blocker, X. Sun, J. Poitier, J. Schur, T. Hamlin, and F. Bingelhaupt. Okay. So, as I talked about earlier, uh, there are trends on the periodic table in terms of electronegativity. Luckily, I know which way size mostly goes. (laughs) Yes. And we often talk about that chemical bonds generally become stronger as the electronegativity difference between the atoms increases. Yes. This is kind of what I said earlier. And this 
conventionally has been thought to be a causal link with mm-hmm. a greater electronegativity difference causing a stronger bond. Mm-hmm. And so, as I kind of said earlier, if you have a big difference in electronegativity, it's going to be a stronger covalent bond. Dun, dun, These researchers dun. have actually proven that this is not the case, <gasps> and they used density functional theory calculations, which oh, no. I'm not going to go into, but is just quantum mechanical math. Yes. Maths, as best. They did say. some maths and proved they... it was not the... not proved. And we scientists don't prove anything. Scientists do their best to demonstrate things. <laughs> they with a reasonable amount of evidence they yes, there's a lot yes, of convincing the... evidence that they showed that this is not the case <laughs> yes so they looked at element element bonds involving atoms from periods two and three and groups 14 to 17 right. so if you think about the periodic table in your head periods two and three are rows three and uh, <laughs> are rows two and three okay, and <laughs> Sorry. And <laughs> groups 14 to 17 are near the right-hand side. It's like carbon and nitrogen. Yeah, I was going to say, these are my favorite and... places. <laughs> yeah, it's I know, where, all it's of your... these ones. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so the researchers found some interesting things when they ran these calculations. Got it. So along a period, yes. going from, for instance, a carbon-carbon bond. Wait, periods are rows? Periods are rows. Okay. <laughs> groups are columns. Okay. And so... Along a period, for yep. instance, a carbon-carbon bond going along to a carbon-fluorine bond. Right. So going along the period. Yeah. The electronegativity explains the trend in bond strength. They right. found that through their calculations, the overriding factor that explains bond strength is electronegativity. So In the row. The way... Yes. Along the period. In the row. But within a group, so going down, down a columns. column... It actually can't be explained by the differences in electronegativity. So, like a carbon-silicon bond doesn't make sense, or a carbon? No, like a, a carbon-fluorine bond compared to a carbon-iodine bond or a carbon-bromine okay. bond. Right. And we often would say that the difference in electronegativity is determining the bond strength, but actually, it appears through these calculations that the real reason is the effective atom size of Mm -hmm. the different... In in their case, they used halogens as examples, so fluorine, chlorine, bromine, iodine, and it's the different halogen size um, that increases the Pauli repulsion. So it's actually just kind of a steric interaction of the larger halogens reducing the bond strength and keeping, keeping the two atoms apart. Interesting. Yes, it is very interesting because this completely flies in the face of what we teach in first year chemistry textbooks Mm -hmm. because carbon-fluorine bonds, I mean, it is a strong bond. That is true. But we often talk about it in terms of the electronegativity difference, not in terms of what actually is the case, the Pauli repulsion. But the carbon-fluorine is not the Pauli repulsion. It has very limited Pauli repulsion. So here, I I have another picture that we can look at. If you look at this figure... Yes. On the left, we have, they've labeled it as electronegativity. And this is a diagram that illustrates how the bonding between carbon and iodine and carbon and fluorine would happen. Mm -hmm. So you can see that when carbon binds with iodine, if we were to explain it in terms of electronegativity difference, the Mm -hmm. distance that that carbon goes down to the red shelf, you see that in the center is the bonding energies, the distance that it has to travel to get down to that red shelf is Mm -hmm. less than if it goes down to a carbon-fluorine bond. Yeah. Right? So there's a greater electronegativity difference. Therefore, as we often teach, the carbon-fluorine bond is a stronger bond. Yeah. But what these researchers found when they actually ran through the density functional theory calculations is that the size here on the right dictates that bond strength. And you can see this by the overlap of the carbon and the fluorine. There's a very Mm -hmm. small... Um, area that's shared between the two and then the carbon and iodine there's a lot more area there which increases the repulsion iodine's a bigger atom and so it actually has a weaker bond to the carbon simply because of the steric interactions or the Pauli repulsion or you know it's just a bigger boy yes does that make sense not really okay how can i clarify (laughs) okay wait so 
sorry, the difference between carbon and iodine is less than carbon mm-hmm. and fluorine, mm-hmm. which follows the rule of weaker bond, less electron negative. Well, so this difference. This is what's interesting is we've often thought of it this way because it follows this rule, but when you actually look into the quantum mechanical calculations, it does not explain it. What actually explains this difference is the Pauli repulsion and the size. Why does the electron negativity not explain it? Because of the maths. If I can put because it simply, of the maths. Because oh, of the no. maths. But okay, I get it. I'm going down because... a road that we can't explain. Well, no, no, no. It, it was explained in the paper, but I just... Yeah. It was, if I'm being honest, it was very difficult. much above me. It was... Yeah. The calculations, I did not completely understand, and I did not have someone to explain to me. But yeah. essentially, they looked at... If you think about it, they ran some mathematical calculations, models... Yeah. And it spat out what the overriding factor was that dictated bond strength. And in terms of comparing a a carbon-carbon bond to a carbon-fluorine bond, the calculations said that it was electronegativity, which Mm -hmm. confirms what we already teach and what we kind of already thought. But when they ran it for carbon-fluorine compared to carbon-iodide, it spat out something different. It said, actually, it's the Pauli repulsion that is the greatest contributor to bond strength. Okay, but it's confusing to me because I was taught that these atoms are not as good as fluorine, not as electron negative or whatever, Mm -hmm. because they're bigger. So I don't understand (laughs) how they differentiated between size alone and size being an like producer of the difference in electron negativity. Do you see what I mean? So it's, they were looking at the effect of electronegativity on mm-hmm. bond strength and the effect of size on bond strength. Okay. Because, yeah, electronegativity and size are related, but they were looking at the effect on bond strength. Okay. Because in terms of electronegativity and in terms of the broader periodic table, mm-hmm. you would think or you can see that a greater difference in electronegativities increases the bond strength. Mm-hmm. But when you start to look at these more specific examples, it's actually mm-hmm. the size difference that dictates the bond strength in terms okay. of these carbon-halogen bonds. Okay. Does that make sense? I accept that they mathed that out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they didn't just look at carbon. Like yeah. I said, they looked at a, a bunch of different other atoms. And so they found that Pauli repulsion was the deciding factor for bond strength in silicone halogen bonds, like Mm -hmm. silicon chlorine, and halogen halogen bonds, like chlorine, molecular chlorine, and Mm -hmm. HF. So it's not just these very, very specific niche cases, but actually quite a number of Mm -hmm. bonding interactions are dictated by repulsion, not electronegativity. And so to be sure I understand, is it the difference in size between the two atoms that is dictating this or is it just the like size of the largest atom sort of thing? Like That's a good question. Will because... two big boys bond? <laughs> if I could put it that way. Are they impeded by size or is it just the big boy and the small boy, and then the big boy has to overlap too much with the small boy to get, like, a reasonable overlap for a bond? I believe it's just size, because they also looked at halogen-halogen. So they looked at chlorine-chlorine bonds, and right. even in that case, size dictates polyrepulsion. To be more specific, mm-hmm. polyrepulsion dictates bond strength, okay. not electronegativity. Okay. And so... The key summary that I kind of just have here for this interesting paper is that a popular example of electronegativity used in many textbooks, uh, because a lot of textbooks, when we teach about electronegativity or you're learning in first-year chemistry about electronegativity, carbon-fluorine bonds are used in so many textbooks as examples to illustrate electronegativity and bonding interactions and stuff. But it's actually incorrect, as polyrepulsion explains these bonds more accurately. 
Not the carbon fluorine, the carbon chlorine. Yeah, carbon chlorine also is dictated by... I thought by... you said carbon fluorine was explained by electron negativity, but carbon chlorine wasn't. No, all, all of the carbon halogens are better explained okay. by polyrepulsion. When you were first explaining it, you said across the rows, if you're looking at carbon fluorine, this is explained by electron negativity, but if you go down and do carbon chlorine, it's not. So across, across the rows, if you're going from carbon-carbon to carbon fluorine electronegativity dictates but if you're going down the columns it is not so we're looking only at the difference in bond strength then so if you're comparing a carbon fluorine to a carbon chlorine the difference in bond strength is explained by the size or the poly repulsion theory okay then i've misunderstood this whole (laughs) section (laughs) well it's not bond strength that we're talking about it's difference in bond strength (laughs) <laughs> is there a difference in those? Well, because if you're going from carbon-carbon mm-hmm. bond to carbon-fluorine bond, that's explained by electron negativity. Mm-hmm. The bond strength. Yes. Okay, yes. The, the difference in bond strength between those two is explained by their differences in electronegativities between carbon and fluorine. Yes. But the difference in bond strength between a carbon-fluorine bond and a carbon-chlorine bond is not explained Mm-hmm. By electronegativity, it is explained by polyrepulsion. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So in a in essence, the bond strength is dictated by multiple yes. factors, and depending on what bonds you're comparing and how you're traveling across the periodic table, different factors explain more of the change than other factors. So if you're going across the row or across the period <laughs> from a carbon-carbon bond which are approximately the same size to a carbon-fluorine bond, which is also still pretty small, then electron negativity rules the show of explaining the difference in strength. Mm -hmm. But if you're going down from a carbon-fluorine to a carbon-chlorine, where you're gaining a lot of size in the atom of chlorine, then it's the poly exclusion, not the electron negativity difference between the fluorine-chlorine. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. Yeah, and and also also they found that (laughs) Bonds like chlorine-chlorine are dictated mm-hmm. by this repulsion. The bond strength of it is dictated by the repulsion, not the electron negativity difference. Okay. So, um, to summarize yes. this episode, or what to summarize the interesting things that we've relearned, super hydrogen bonds are a thing. They exist. Uh, and people. they they are yeah, and they're in the gray lo- gray area between what a hydrogen bond is and a covalent bond is, mm-hmm. and so. Covalent and hydrogen bonds are not as clearly defined as maybe we thought they once were. Mm-hmm. And also that electronegativity is not the prevailing reason for bond strength of carbon halogen bonds. Poly repulsion is, as you, I think you summarized that much better. Oh, thanks. Did my best to make it make sense. But yeah. Yeah. And so the real answer is always more complicated and nothing is ever black and white. Well, bonds are also just interesting generally, I think. Maybe as like an overall thing for people to take away is that chemical bonds Mm. don't look the same between two different atoms. Like it's always different and there's always different principles governing that bond length, that bond energy, because the two molecules are different. You could think of it like relationships like between people, you know, the relationship you're going to have with your family might be stronger than the relationship you have with your friends, unless there's some other principle that comes into play when you have a new relationship with a friend or with a partner or something and so all of these factors go into how close you stand to each other on the subway you know and then (laughs) no but seriously it's like (laughs) subway um, repulsion theory i think this is one of the things that i found the most cool about chemistry is that you could really think of each atom on the periodic table as its own person and with its own Mm. interests likes dislikes and behaviors and characteristics and that's what governs their interactions with each other and but you yeah. know there's some trends so like if somebody likes ice cream a lot and somebody likes ice cream very little then those two might make a really tight pair because you know one is going to always give their ice cream to the other person but if they both like ice cream a lot then there might be other factors that <laughs> impact their relationship <laughs> you know yeah. and Honestly, I don't hate this analogy because in different scenarios, atoms behave differently. Exactly. And if somebody's already bonded with two hydrogens, 
then they might not be open for a third thing unless it's, you know, sort of casual and it just comes and goes like a ion dissolved in the water and they're just interacting, but they're not really in a relationship. Yeah. There's a lot of poly happening here. Yeah, carbon's a freak with its its four covalent bonds. Oof. Okay, but like, can we talk about metal ions? <laughs> <laughs> metal yeah, ions. Magnesium. Woo. Six. Let's go. Damn, Let's girl. go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'd also like to say carbon's not a freak. Carbon can do whatever it wants mm-hmm. in its life, and uh, yeah, you know, we're very sex positive on this podcast, <laughs> especially between atoms. <laughs> Yes. The sexual... I told you we were going to get to... The sexual life of Adams. That's what we should rename this podcast. No, that's our second podcast. The After Dark, oh, The no. Sexual Life of Adams. <laughs> I love it. I love yes. this. We'll start a, a next a sex, a sex <laughs> podcast. A, our next podcast. Will be a sex <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, anyways... Well, uh, any any final thoughts, Sienna? Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, you're composing yourself. I'm gonna. Uh, I'll run through my sources. Okay. So, um, again, we had crossover from hydrogen to chemical bonding, which was published in Science by B. Derecka, Q. U. and Lewis, W. Carpenter, J. Bowman, and A. Tokmakov, as well as the chemical bond when atom size instead of electronegativity difference determines the trend in bond strength, published in Chemistry, a European journal, by E. Blocker, X. Sun, J. Poitier, J. Schur, T. Hamlin, and F. Binkelhaupt. I also had some help from an article in Chemistry World by Kira Welter called Electronegativity's Role in Determining Bond Strength Needs to be Rethought, as well as an article in Chemical and Engineering News by Sam Lemonick called Where the Hydrogen Bond Ends and the Covalent Bond Begins. Go check all of those out if you want the full density functional theory <laughs> calculations and quantum mechanical models. Uh, Otherwise, you, chemistry just, nerds out you can just take away the fact that, you know, bonding is not quite so cut and dry, and you could even say it comes in 50 shades of gray. All right. Had to get that in there somewhere. I really needed we? to work that one in. <laughs> Thank you very much for all of you for listening. My name continues to be Alistair. My name is still Sienna. And we hope you will tune in to this podcast again soon. Yes, it was lovely getting to talk to you, as per usual. And maybe enjoy it with your covalent partners. Good night. Good night. Goodbye.